Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is Neil McCluskey, director of Cato's Center for Educational Freedom. His new book is The Fractured Schoolhouse, Reexamining Education for a Free, Equal, and Harmonious Society. Welcome back to the show, Neil. Hi. Thanks for having me on. Recent years, and I really mean about the last two, we've seen some pretty pitched battles about school curriculum coming from both the left and the right. Uh, Of course, conservatives are quite against the quote-unquote woke kind of teaching and critical race theory, whatever that may mean. And the left has their own theories of educational content. And it seems a little bit weird because this kind of came up recently. And I think back to my childhood growing up in the 80s and the 90s. And while we had this kind of religious discussion and prayer in schools and evolution a little bit, it it didn't really happen in my school district. It seemed like that was a time when we were all kind of agreeing and about what public schools should teach. And now it's kind of splintering. So is that, is that one reason why you wrote the book now? And is that sort of like a theme that's emerging now in education? Well, I actually started working, as you probably know, on this sort of subject a long time ago. Uh, In 2005, I guess it was, I wrote a policy analysis called Why We Fight, How Public Schools Cause Social Conflict. Uh, That was actually motivated by two things. One was working in education policy, I get tired of hearing that we should never have school choice because if we had school choice or sort of inversely, if we didn't have public schools, we would fracture and we'd fly off into our own little camps. We'd be balkanized, as the term often used. And not only would we go off into our own camps, but it would somehow also cause us to fight with one another. I hear that a lot, and I'd hear that public schools, terms like they're the foundation of our democracy, they are what unify us. And I thought that that just sort of logically didn't make sense. Uh, I knew enough education history that I think historically didn't make sense. And we were actually at that time seeing some very severe conflicts over evolution and creationism. Oh, that was about the time of that Pennsylvania court case, wasn't around that time? Exactly. So, and it wasn't strictly creationism. There was a debate about, well, we're really talking about intelligent design, which is supposed to be something different from creationism, although it was similar, you know, quite related. But yes, so we were having this conflict in several places. There were also in Alabama and some other districts, they were saying, well, okay, we'll teach evolution, but we'll put stickers in the textbooks that say, okay, evolution is only a theory. If you want to learn more, get the book of Pandas and People, which talked about creationism. And then it was York, Pennsylvania, I believe, where they had this big fight. And it was one of the last times I actually saw good journalism that did more than just say, this side is for this, this side is for the other. The the people who want creationism, we're just going to say that they're pretty much troglodytes. This actually got into how this debate was really ripping this town apart and how people who were neighbors who would see each other, you know, on the way to the store or something, could no longer speak to each other and how they were feeling sort of alienated and they were feeling often insulted. And I thought, how can we have things like this going on and still say, well, public schooling unifies us. What it seems to do often is make diverse people fight with each other, fight with their neighbors to try and control what is taught in the schools um, that they all have to pay for and hence use. You know, you've got a battle for supremacy to get the schools to teach what you want. And we actually have seen this throughout the history of public schooling, but it kind of comes and goes in waves. And so today, I think we're in another one of those waves with what's called CRT and what people call gender ideology and a lot of sort of deep values kind of uh, issues that have come to the fore uh, mixed in with a stew of anger over how schools handled COVID, which has also sort of increased the animosity and the energy in these debates. That, that my first question was obviously leading in the sense of this, this idea that I think the cyclical aspect of it is interesting where, you know, where you maybe grow up or what time you grow up in. Maybe it doesn't seem like public schools are, you know, completely beset with this kind of conflict. But of course, if you grew up in 
Philadelphia in the 1840s, uh, or actually a lot of the middle 19th century, you would be very, very familiar with these kind of conflicts. Uh, so how does that cycle kind of work? I mean, it's obviously not exact, but like, but we have this, these kind of backlashes for what the purposes of public school is supposed to do for us, this uniting purpose. Well, you know, for most of our history, the biggest cleavages have been about religion whose religion and whether religion at all should be in public schools. So we saw actually a lot of that historically. Um, what is interesting is, so you go to the colonial period and most of our history until about 1830, uh, and there isn't much thought that there should be government-run schools. There could be some government help in funding schools, in large part because the British tradition was uh, privately funded schools, which often had endowments from land, but the one thing that was super abundant in the colonies was land. So you didn't get as much value out of that. So sometimes you had private schools that received some uh, government help. And then in Massachusetts, it's true that in 1647, there was a law passed, the old Deluder Satan Act, that said, okay, towns of 50 to 99 people have to have someone who teaches kids. And if you have more than a, or 100 or more families, you have to have a grammar school. The idea of the grammar school was, you know, it's a place you went to learn, but also then to feed people into Harvard to become ministers and leaders. So it was, keep in mind, sort of a theocracy, uh, not just um, uh, a government. It was they were put together. Um but what's really important is people say, so that was the beginning of public schools. Well, that wasn't even maintained in England, I mean, in New England. And then if you go to the Middle Atlantic colonies, which actually have a lot more diversity, so diverse religion, people of diverse backgrounds, a large German population, there's nothing like public schooling. So New England, they didn't keep it for the most part. Middle Atlantic colonies, they didn't have it because they couldn't, because they were too diverse. And then in the South, you have a much more spread out population, but you actually do have a lot of affordable education. So you have a lot of schooling going on. It's not public schooling. It's largely private schooling. And by the time you get to 1840, which is the first um, sort of national uh, level literacy data we have, 90% of white adult Americans are literate, roughly. White is important because governments often said, if you're African-American, you cannot receive education. That wasn't a failure of the private sector, although certainly it would have been hard probably to expect many private schools to accept African-Americans, but this was government doing this. So until you get to 1830, there's really not much idea that the government should supply schools. When we get a new nation, you see some leaders like Benjamin Rush in Pennsylvania, um, Thomas Jefferson. Others talking about there's some should be some provision of education in a land where the people now have serious say in how they're governed. They don't all have it, you know, their property rights issues and things like that. But the idea is that the people have power. And you could see why some founders were worried. You know, you have the French Revolution going on. They think we don't want the mob, and the mob was a problem in many places. We don't want a mob mentality, so we need to sort of enlighten people. But even the founders don't agree with each other. Those who call for some sort of public schooling don't agree with each other what it should ultimately be about, how it looks. And it's not really until you get to 1837 and Horace Mann, who says he becomes the first secretary of education uh, in Massachusetts. And he says, well, we really got to have common schools. Why? In part, it was religion. He, New England has changed. He is a Unitarian. He doesn't like the more kind of Puritan types called Congregationalists by this time. And people think he's worried about Catholics. They haven't actually arrived yet. That's the next big wave. But he's, New England's where industrialization starts, not the best farming land, lots of rivers. And he sees people coming in from the hinterlands to places like Boston. He's like, these people are ignorant. They're kind of dirty. They need me to tell them what to do. Interestingly, he homeschooled his kids. He didn't use the public schools. Um, but so- Doesn't that always seem to be the case? I mean, you follow Corey DeAngelis' Twitter, and it's like so many people who are against, who are against private schools seem to private school their kids or homeschool them. It's true. Uh, in fact, I think both the Democrat running- for governor and the one running for Senate in Pennsylvania, both private send their kids to private schools and both have said they really support the public school system. It is, and teachers tend to disproportionately use private schools. 
Um, and so there is a practice what you preach problem. I don't want to say, though, that Horace Mann probably didn't think this was a good idea. I think he did. He may have thought, okay, this is too formative. It's not ready yet for my kids. But there is this sort of constant theme of people saying, what's best for America is that everyone sends their kids to public schools, except for mine, because, you know, they're kind of special and needs special things, unlike your kids, who all look exactly the same and don't need anything different. But it's not till you get to Horace Mann, actually, that you have lots of fights among different Protestants about what the public schools, these common schools, would teach. Do you just teach sort of lowest common denominator Protestantism? Do you include the different beliefs of different denominations? Uh, and Horace Mann said, well, we'll teach the Bible, which is, we all agree, is the expositor of all things in Christianity. And people said, well, what you're really trying to do is just eliminate anything other than lowest common denominator Protestantism, which some of them said, hey, that's Unitarianism. So you've made the schools what you want, not what we want. They fight like that for a while, but then you get to the really big first wave of fights, which are Catholics who don't use the same Bible. They don't use the King James. Uh, their own Bible has different books than the Protestant Bible. There's a lot of fear that Catholics are not really connected to a democratic country, that they will do whatever the Pope says. That's the biggest cleavage we have really up through about the night. So from about 1845 to 19, well, 1840 to about 1960, that's probably the biggest. Although by the time you get to the 20th century, you have a lot of fights about should religion be in public schools at all, no matter whose it is. But also running throughout this is race. But race isn't as big an issue about what happens in the public schools for most of our history, because for most of our history, we said, you can't use the public schools. That then becomes, though, the biggest issue when finally, really not until about the 1960s, so you have Brown v. Board in 1954, but a long period of time of trying to get that implemented. It's not really until the 1960s or 70s that you start to see physical integration of the schools and race not, you know, race not being an issue in that, can you access the school? Now it's which schools can you access? How do we make sure that they are physically integrated? What do they teach about racial subjects? And that's kind of where we are now, actually. This current wave is about two things. How do you teach about the history and character of the United States, in particular as it regards race? A lot of this was brought to the fore by George Floyd and school administrators' reactions to George Floyd saying, we've got to teach about systemic racism. Um, and then a lot of the rest of it is about religion, including questions that are called gender ideology, but all these sorts of, you know, transgender issues, LGBT, or, you know, so all those issues, um, many of them have at their heart religion and religious values. Um, and so that's kind of the wave that we're in is both of these things and how they are taught as reflecting the character of the United States. It's interesting you brought up the old deluder statue of 1647 coming out of Massachusetts. And I'm, I'm glad you pointed out that Massachusetts was basically a theocracy, uh, which <clears throat> we like to talk about religious liberty and they're in search of religious liberty and, and sure for them, but the way they ran their country would violate most provisions of the first amendment today. Uh, if the constitution existed establishment clause and free exercise clause, but that kind of, brings up the interesting point because for advocates of public school who point to the, let's just assume, let's just say a, a teacher's union advocate who point to the long tradition of common and public schools in this country, going back to the, 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 the old deluder statute of 1647. Um, I'm quite sure that if Randy Weingarten and other people were back in 1647, they would vehemently oppose the type of school that was trying to be opposed on them by the Puritans in 17th century Massachusetts, which goes to the bigger point that if you control public schools, you might be for them. But if you don't, you're, you, you're probably or likely to be against them. Yeah, that's actually a great point because what we find is I constantly encounter writings, for instance, uh, Anya Kamenetz, who had been an NPR reporter, 
Uh, just wrote something oh, a couple weeks ago, so it would have been uh, early September, late August, talking about, well, you know what? The public schools really screwed up with COVID. Um, but it's absolutely important that we recover the reputation of public schools because they're the foundation of our democracy uh, and they bring us all together and terrible right-wingers want school choice and they're exploiting this for that purpose. And she only very briefly, she she somehow talks about how they unify us, only mentions Catholics and saying, well, you know, so some private schools are Catholics because Catholics kind of like parochial schools. No, none of the background as to why. And then a little throwaway line about, sure, I mean, public schools haven't been perfect. And that's because when you get these kind of hagiographic discussions of public schools, they don't actually want to deal with much of the true history of public schools because it's all so troubling, or much of it is troubling. There's actually another side of this that's important. But so none of them would support, well, okay, yeah, so it wasn't great that we first denied African-Americans access to public schools, and then that we segregated them their own schools. That was bad. Okay, so if you press us, we'll acknowledge that. Um, but we don't do that anymore. So don't worry about that. So this has been a great system. It's just it had this really terrible aspect for most of its existence. But don't worry, because we don't do that. So now we know the system's really good and choice is bad. Um, same thing for religion. To just say, to celebrate public schooling and only say, well, Catholics kind of don't like it because they like the parochial schools without saying why those parochial schools were established, because the public schooling system uh, was both incompatible with Catholicism and often very hostile to it, that means you actually don't like most of the history of public schooling. You like the idea of public schooling. And maybe maybe they don't realize that they are ignoring a lot of history because it's pretty ugly and a major part of public schooling. Or maybe they do, but one way or the other, I don't know anybody's motives, but what ends up happening is you lionize a system that you know at one level has never been close to what you say it is. And then you use it to attack another system only because it's different. And maybe you do fear balkanization and things like that. But uh, one of the major reasons I wrote this book and worked on this is because the history simply does not support what people say about public schools. And that needs to be stated over and over again. And then the part about choice, you know, will it unify us, things like that? You know, we, we can get into that, obviously, but that's not a sure thing. But we certainly know that public schools haven't done what we say they do. And that is a big part of this book and explaining why it is they can't do what we've said they've done. For my lifetime, conservatives have railed against public schools uh, to, to this point. And longtime listeners have heard me say this before, where I've always been skeptical that they really dislike public schools as opposed to they don't like the fact that they don't control public schools, that really if they could control, and we see now they're trying to, I mean, they would like to dictate the curriculum and they, they think this is the right of the state to create people as conservatives see fit and the other side thinks the same thing, just different values involved. But in the 50s, you could say that that was a time when conservatives might have controlled more of public education and more values of public education were conservative in nature. And so therefore, you you have the school choice movement, which is not necessarily, quote unquote, right wing. I mean, to be honest, it would not even, to me, register as a right wing movement at all, actually. Public schools seem to be extremely conservative in nature. And the people who always oppose them we're the radicals and the liberals and the leftists and the people who are coming out and saying, you know, as long as we don't hold the power in the system, then we need to oppose the system imposing a theory of citizen craftsmanship, person craftsmanship onto my children. But it's all flipped, but it, it's not it's not a necessary flip. It, it could easily flip the other way. And we've seen that in history. Yes. Yeah, so you're right in that public schooling is really probably fundamentally a conservative institution. Um, there's lots of sociology about this, but a major job of education that was given to public schooling is something called social reproduction. The idea is that 
The public school is where everybody in the newest generation goes so that they learn the values and the order and everything that the current generations want them to know so that society keeps being reproduced the way it is. That is a very conservative thing. That's why most of the battles that we see through history are about conservative, more conservative people saying, no, don't allow something to happen. We are worried about Catholics. We are worried about other immigrants. We are worried about African-Americans. We want to control what they learn, what they think, where they go. And that is all very conservative. On the flip side, there is a strain of progressives who have said, wait a minute, you know, we have this powerful apparatus to where we can affect minds. We should use this to change society to what we think it should be. This is a lot of the concern the conservatives have about critical race theory, what they call critical race theory. And there is evidence that critical race theory, even properly defined, not just as something about race, is often taught to teachers, part of trainings. I don't know that it's as ubiquitous as conservatives will say it is, but there are certainly many examples of it being taught, of it informing how curricula are put together. So it's a real thing. So public schooling is largely conservative, but certainly progressives have talked about taking the reins of it to engineer change. The fundamental problem is it's force. It's people from above saying, we will decide what all children will learn. A proper American is this, or to get the proper America, we have to change it to X. I think one of the reasons, though, that school choice is considered sort of right wing probably goes to the old conservative libertarian fusionism that seems to be falling apart these days. You know, the old Bill Buckley, Ronald Reagan, hey, we can agree on general freedom, especially economic freedom. Freedom, choose schools for your kids seems like part of that. We want it to be based on a free market. And I think that's why it is now associated with the right. But there were actually many progressives in the 60s who were champions of school choice because they saw urban public schools and said, these are terrible, dangerous uh, failure factories that reproduce all sorts of dysfunction and systemic racism, although they probably weren't using the term then. And they said there should be school choice. In fact, there was a good article, and I should think it might have been Justin Driver who wrote it, but I can't remember, about, hey, everybody, progressives came first. They were the ones who came up with the school choice idea. But I think they've tended to abandon it, part maybe because it's too associated with the right, but also because the kind of conservative special interests, the ones who want to conserve their position, the, especially the teachers' unions, but also principals' associations, superintendent associations, school board associations, they all tend to be on the political left, which likes kind of big government. And so I think we don't see as many or hear as many of these progressive voices for choice anymore. These concerns are illegitimate, though, the balkanization concerns, the you know not having a cultural identity as a country. This has long been a concern of countries around the world, and it ties into many other policy areas like immigration, for example, you know how many immigrants are we going to let in and how much can they completely change the ethos of the country is as we well know this there was a very big idea that we were protestant in our nature in our founding and that the the protestant ethos sort of was part of the revolution and that the catholics could could undermine that now, i'm not saying that that's true but i'm saying that there are different cultures that could undermine the nature of the collective culture of a of a nation and it's not illegitimate to be concerned about it. So maybe the actual problem here is what level of normativity we're like talking about. Maybe, you know, there there needs to be something, just a baseline, like reading, writing, arithmetic, like let's get some educational outcomes. Let's have people know how many houses of Congress there are, you know, what the branches of government, the basic about government, like that, that baseline thing. Uh, and that what really we shouldn't be doing is going up that normative ladder and teaching religion or other types of values, but we do need a baseline thing if we're going to be a nation. Yeah, well, I am sympathetic to lots of people who worried about, you know, how do we get first when we have a new country? How do we get people to buy into this new country? How do we make sure that they use their power as voters? Um, responsibly. 
because you could look at other countries and say, well, how do we not devolve into mob rule? And they didn't have to look at other countries, actually. You could look at various rebellions in the U.S. and say, you know, we really worry about mob rule. Um, you can certainly understand why Horace Mann saw people come in from the countryside who, you know, probably didn't wash their hands all the time and may not have spoken very well and said, you know, I really worry that these people uh, need sort of a, some help. Of course, then you find out there's a little problem of arrogance because he actually writes at length about how foolish these people are because they don't understand the science of... Um, uh, oh, no. Now I just forgot the word, and I just had it in my head. You know, the thing where you look at phrenology. Uh, phrenology, um, yeah. Actually, yeah, I'm going to stop because I want to read my favorite paragraph of, of your book as you point this out. Uh, oh, go for it. Uh, <clears throat> man, at the very least, sound, sounded as if he believed common schooling would have extraordinary, transformative, enlightening power. And it would need Herculean potency because as optimistic as man was about public schooling, he appeared pessimistic about the average person. Based on his ruminations about parents in particular, man seemed convinced that many, well, common people were either well-intentioned but dangerously ignorant or rotten. In other words, common schooling was not about perfecting something already good, but overhauling people who were intellectually and often morally dilapidated. Man, what a paragraph. I love that. I love that paragraph. I gave that. I gave oh, that good. a big highlight. Yeah, no, because I find that to be ironic in a lot of these people who seem to care about the common man, but also really don't like them very much. Yeah, well, because a major thrust of early common schooling was the idea that people really lacked virtue, that they were kind of morally decrepit, and you needed public schools to fix that moral decrepitude. Um, and again. It's not like it's hard to understand why people, especially elites, well-educated people, thought that. It is a problem that they didn't have humility. So when man says uh, there's a really a big problem with the average parent because they don't even understand phrenology, modern people, without necessarily condemning man for thinking this was good science, because it may have seemed cutting edge at the time, but we, we know that, well, you probably didn't want to impose phrenology as the end-all and be-all of science on people because it turned out to be quackery. Um, and so there's this problem of a lack of humility among sort of common school uh, champions uh, and people who continue to be for it. But you can certainly, I, I hate it when people, you know, just assume if that person did something I didn't like, they were evil. Their motives were bad. I don't think that we should do that. I don't think there's any evidence that Horace Mann was an evil guy. I think he was trying to help to make things better. I think people who worry about influxes of folks with a different culture, maybe a different language with a different background, who don't do public policy analysis all the time, it's totally reasonable to, and understandable that they're afraid, well, this might fundamentally change the character of the country. And that's, again, one of the reasons I wrote the book is that seems intuitive. But when you start to look at these kinds of issues and kinds of things, you can start to see why actually we shouldn't be as afraid of them and how public schooling that try and force them into a particular model is counterproductive. So I think it's Milton Gordon, although I, I'm always confusing him with another guy, but I think he was the one who wrote about, you know, actually immigrants, of course, when they first get here, they move to places that are full of people like themselves. You've got to have that. I, I'm sure it's not actually Milton Gordon. He wrote about religion, but these two guys are connected. They're, I'm sure, properly identified in the book. I just can't remember them. But anyway, so you you move to a place with people with your background because you need familiar things in order to transition to a whole new country. You're going to feel much more comfortable if people are speaking your language, eating similar foods, know the same sort of stories and things like that. So that makes sense. But what you find, and many people have written this, is that over time, first of all, the next generation wants to be much more like the broader culture. Um, and you find that people just out of self-interest say, you know what? It's actually easier for me if I, you know, if I care about a baseball team that gives me a connection to other people in this country, if I get into the 4th of July, that makes my life easier. I feel more comfortable. The next generation really tends to like those things, but you don't want to have to sacrifice those things that are not part of the common culture that make you who you are. Religion has always or typically been a really big one of those. Um, and so the book tries to explain, it's understandable why you'd be worried about these things, but you shouldn't be. 
there are kind of natural processes that lead people to adopt the common culture. That's totally understandable. You can see why it's in their self-interest, but why they may recoil and actually get angry if you try and impose it on them. If their kids go to schools and their schools say, your parents are backward idiots, that's probably not going to make them too happy about the new country. So understandable concerns. Balkanization is another understandable concern until you realize people want to be part of a common culture. They want to feel comfortable in the country they are in. And what will cause them to fight is if somebody says, the stakes, here they are. If you don't win your culture, the things you think are important, you don't get them. The other people get to impose what they want on you. That seems much more likely to cause balkanization, this kind of fighting among groups, than letting people freely choose what they think is best. Do we have any idea what the, the data might say about this? I mean, we have some recent surveys about dissatisfaction with public school. And as you pointed out, COVID regulations have a big part of that. But do we have any idea about cohesiveness, social belonging, any sort of metric we could use to say, you know, do kids who go to private school, you know, feel less belonging to their country than kids who go to public school. You know, we still have a pretty robust Catholic school system in this country. You know, did we get the uh, Catholic theocracy that some people warned of if we did not socialize the Catholics? I, I, we didn't get there. We did get John F. Kennedy as president. Um, but like, do we have good data, survey data or otherwise that says what what actually might be happening in ter terms of cohesiveness, divisiveness? Yeah, well, so there are two ways that that work. We do have data on lots of data on kids in private schools versus kids in public schools. How do they feel about their role in society? What do they know about how government should work? Do they think that they should be volunteering in their society? And overwhelmingly, that research finds that kids in private schools are more knowledgeable about things like civics, are more active volunteering in their communities, even aside from schools that may require some volunteerism. Um, and that they are more tolerant. So the, a typical question is, well, would do you think it should be legal for somebody who says hateful things about your group to speak in public? And those private school kids are more likely to say, yes, that should be allowed. And this is including controls for things like socioeconomic status, how wealthy they are. So there is the evidence, the research evidence suggests that kids in private schools do better in terms of creation into citizens with the kinds of attitudes and knowledge we we say we want from them. It's one of the things I, I try and emphasize in the book is in terms of how are we bridging different groups? Are we starting to bring different groups together? That there is some suggested evidence that private schools do this better than public schools because you a private school can stand for something in particular. And if they can bring in diverse kids, those kids then have a sort of a new cross-cutting identity as a result of going to this school. But it is only suggestive because the, the how well our schools and different ways of assigning kids to schools, how well it bridges differences, how well it, you know, or decreases social distance among kids of different groups has not been studied a whole lot. We focused far more on achieving physical integration. How many kids of different, typically races, are in one building together? And that's understandable, too, because this started, you know, Brown v. Board said you can no longer physically segregate people. And our first concern is, well, how do we make sure that physical segregation is ended? I think part of that had an assumption of, well, if you bring them all together physically, then they'll start to come together, you'd see a bridging of divides. But the research that exists is, you know, as always, is kind of mixed, but does not really show that, that for instance, forced busing or magnet schools or other for ways we've tried to achieve racial integration in the schools has done a whole lot to increase racial cohesion, or really, I should say, racial bridging. So building bridges across different racial groups. So even it would be in hard to fight against self-segregation at the minimum, right? Like, I mean, self-segregation of a variety of forms. Uh, and of course, much of our interracial segregation is not natural, but like 
if you're pulling public schools from a geographic location like where I grew up in South Denver metro area, we were all pretty similar just by virtue of socioeconomic status, where we were living, why our parents chose to live there, you know. And so you'd say, well, that school has no conflict or very little conflict, right? And so, well, yeah, because the the, the bias, the self-selection just sort of made it fairly homogeneous compared to other types of schools. Well, yeah. So that's a big point uh, for two levels. Um, one is that's why it's hard to achieve even physical integration. People talk about white flight. White flight did accompany, for instance, forced busing, although white flight was happening before forced busing too. So that's important to know. But as long as people are able to move, they will often move away from schools that and that are moving in a direction of a racial or it could be economic uh, uh, makeup that they don't like. But that point about self-selection as to where you go is also really important because it is true that while we've had many conflicts in the history of public schooling, probably many districts didn't see these sorts of, of and many schools didn't see conflicts. But that's because people self-sort a lot. And it's really important to understand that right now we have 13,500 school districts about. Even if you go back to the 1930s, which is the oldest sort of systematic collection of data we have on school districts, back then they were like 1937, there were about 110,000 school districts for a population about a third of the size. You can imagine how concentrated and homogeneous people were in those little districts. And if you go further back than that, it was almost certainly even more. Each district was smaller and more homogeneous. Uh, there's, a, um, I think it's Robert Wiebe, I may be saying his name wrong, a historian who talks about, you know, when Americans didn't get along for most of their history, when we had a big frontier and lots of land, when they didn't get along, they just moved. Like, oh, I don't like the neighbors. Come on, we're going somewhere else. How do you and think so, the Mormons ended up in Salt Lake City? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> there were Mormon complaints too coming out of Massachusetts, and eventually they say we're piecing out. Yeah, in fact, uh, Horace Mann probably one of the early on people to make fun of the Mormons, little and some Millerites and some other little fat, or groups that he didn't like. Um, but so if people people may say, well, okay, why don't we see conflict all the time? And it's really important to understand that this hyper localism enabled people often to escape conflict or just never have it to begin with. And that public schools, well, over time, you get more state dictates and state control. For a long time, public schools were really civil society. People would come to a, a town and they'd be like, or even just a settlement, probably not even a town yet, say, well, we got to have a place the kids can learn their three R's. And it wasn't that somebody has told us we must do this. Because before common schools, again, Literacy was very widespread. Schooling happened everywhere, even in the South, where it was more widespread, even in the sort of frontier hinterlands in the colonies. There was lots of education. A lot of it was because people like to read, you know, and you have to have something to read. So there's not a lot of literacy before there's much to read. But once you have newspapers, a printing press, newspaper, there's a lot to read. So people want to get educated. They have a reason for it. So it's really important, I think, that people understand how uh, much or how decentralized public schooling long was. And that is one of the reasons that there wasn't more conflict. Where it was centralized, though, you often saw a kind of ugly conflict. Now, when we talk about changing the system, the complaints of whether it's school vouchers, tax credits, other types of, of supplying private education, uh, they they deal with, you know, making sure that there's a common school and there's a common ethos and we need to make sure all the kids are together. But they also deal a lot with equity um, and saying that that if we really let private schooling run rampant, if we pass voucher programs, we're going to take all the rich, well-to-do kids out of the public schools and leave the public schools entirely with the poor often people of color, students of color in those situations. And there, in terms of balkanization, that's not going to do better at all. I mean, it, and we know that, you know, one of the most important things about being in the upper classes, even if you're not wealthy, but you but you move in the upper classes is making upper class friends. Uh, and be, and I mean, this is probably the biggest advantage of going to Harvard is you get to meet future diplomats and presidents and senators who later can, you know, give you a job or a letter of recommendation. And so, so if we do balkanize according to 
monetary, according to wealth, don't we create a different problem of like an upper class and a lower class where the upper class is in private schools and the lower class is relegated to public schools? Yeah. I mean, that that sort of socio or the kind of economic class-based balkanization is a real concern. But the first thing we have to recognize is that the current system is massively balkanized. Uh, if what school you get depends on how much home you can buy, that's a lot more money than paying for tuition. So if I want to go to, I don't know, Gross Point or somewhere in Michigan, I got to be able to spend a lot of money on a house. And so rich people can do that. It's also worth noting that rich people can already pay for private school without it hurting them in their pocketbook very much. Sometimes they'll pay for a a prep school that costs more than most colleges, Andover, Exeter, uh, Dalton, lots of schools like that that are the preserves of the wealthy. So the current system does almost nothing to fix or to ameliorate class-based balkanization. And then even within schools, this is a really important thing that people I think don't think about a lot. We talk about racial integration about this most, but it would include economic integration. This idea that, well, we'll see like in the South, we got everybody into the same building. The thing is within that building, then there is massive segregation, first and foremost, in tracking for classes. And so often you see people who are, yeah, they're sort of in the same building, but they never meet each other. They never know each other. They're not taught together. And you might as well have separate schools. So the current system seems to do very little, if anything, to fix balkanization or separation based on economics. What school choice can help to do, and school choice is not a panacea. When we talk about school choice, we're talking about what can be done within the education system. Much of what needs to be fixed is outside of the education system. So a major reason that we have economic segregation is because of housing policies, in particular federal housing policies that said, well, African-Americans, you cannot access this federal money for loans and things like that. And our zoning is going to be based on race. So that's not something you just fix with education. But within education, the idea is that school choice at least gives the money to the family where they can begin to make up the difference of what you can afford in terms of tuition. It's not enough to buy the mansion, but it does enable you to pay tuition. And we've got to understand most private schools are not Andover and Exeter and Dalton. Most private schools are Uh, sort of low-cost religious schools, not all religions, but the average tuition is about $12,000. The average we spend per pupil in public schools is about $16,000. So these are very affordable if you just give people that money. And we want to break down this extremely expensive and big wall of house equaling, house price equaling tuition to tuition equaling tuition. There's certainly a good argument that you might want to put together or shape a school choice program where it's graduated, where lowest income people get the most, and then you may reach a certain income cap where they don't get anything, and it differs in between. But most school choice so far has been focused either on low-income kids or kids in schools that get very bad outcomes, which also tend to be low-income kids, or kids with disabilities who are often not well um uh, public schools aren't well equipped to to help them or may just feel they need some power rather than have to go through IDEA, the Individual Disabilities Education Act, and hopefully sue the school into doing what they want. So balkanization is a concern, but it's already a huge concern and choice at least breaks down that huge barrier of you want to access a school, you've got to buy a house. Some of the fundamental questions in the philosophy of public education, which to me is, I mean, it really is one of the core sort of philosophies of political political philosophy. Uh, they became clear to me when I was engaged in voucher debates, you know, in college and in high school, and I would ask people who were opposing vouchers, I'd say, okay, let's just, you know, let's double the amount of money that the voucher has. Like, I think it's $27,000 per pupil in DC, the most expensive public school district in the country. Let, you know, let's just, let's, you know, let's make it, let's make it 50 grand. And uh, we'll just say your voucher can go to any, any private school and they can do whatever they want with it. And then people would always say, 
whatever they want with it. Like really, what whatever they want with it. So you're going to give state money to any type of education. It might be Mormons. It might be crazy crystal healing new age people. It might be classes that are only finger painting or they don't even teach math. They just teach music. And you, you get into this entire discussion and no matter who you're talking to, whether they're conservative or from the left, you end up back at where you started, which is everyone has an idea of what needs to be taught children. And, and, and the voucher is not good enough because there needs to be a baseline. Everyone, everyone comes in with a baseline about what values need to be taught to create the next generation. And so that brings the question of, is the entire project of public schooling, even funding it, let's say with vouchers, sort of insoluble? Like, is it is it not something that we can really get to where we just we just can't agree on the meaning of the word education and what we should teach our, quote unquote, our children to such a degree that the entire concept of public schooling cannot work? Well, so, I mean, I'll talk about distinct public schooling and public education. So public schooling is the government actually supplies the schools. Public education would be government supplies money to get the education. And I think you're right. As long as there is some government funding involved, there are always going to be debates about, well, what should the schools that get that funding have to do, basically, or be prohibited from doing or from teaching? Uh, I think we, we already break a lot of that down with scholarship tax credits, individual use tax credits, uh, basically saying to people, you just keep your money instead of paying twice for education. We see those are less regulated than vouchers. Um, and not always. I mean, people still say, well, okay, but if you don't pay taxes, that means I have to pay taxes for like the garbage collection. Uh, and so you're really just passing it off on me. But they tend to be much less regulated because nobody can say I was forced to give somebody money that went to a school that teaches something I find hateful. Um, so we're already solving that in part with these tax credit kind of mechanisms. Um, but then I do think we need to to hopefully change minds about understanding how public schooling in particular, but also if you say, well, we'll have school choice, but every school has to teach the same, how fundamentally at odds that is with what is the primary American value, and that is, that is liberty. If we want to call ourselves a free society, you cannot do it by saying whatever the people with most political power come up with is what you teach the kids or you don't teach the kids. Um, and I think we're starting to see, I mean, I think throughout our history, we've seen a lot of people who recognize that. Um, and as we become more diverse, I think you're going to see more and more people realizing at the very least, wait a minute, if I'm not in charge, things get imposed on me that I don't like. I think we might start seeing progressives who have been the biggest opponents of choice, generally speaking, starting to realize this, not just, you know, famously Matt Damon, uh, actor, his mom is a, an education professor. She's very opposed to school choice. He's very opposed to school choice himself. He speaks out on it and sends his kids to extremely expensive, or at least he used to, his kids may be grown by now, very expensive private schools, like $45,000 a year private schools. And he explained, well, you know, the reason I have to do that is because nobody allows public schools to have this really great progressive pedagogy. And you're like, dude, do you see the problem? You can't get a majority to want what you want. And would you would like to see other kids be able to access who aren't so rich? Does this, wouldn't a better system be let the money follow kids and then you'd see lots of different options made available? That used to be the biggest problem. But I think now actually in part because of mask battles in, well, actually first because of the uh, vaccination and just opening battles where even liberal towns got into big debates about whether or not their schools should be open. Then you saw it with the mask mandate. Should there be one? Shouldn't there be one? And progressives started to see, you know what? One size really doesn't fit all. And then seeing you, these laws passed in places like Florida and Oklahoma and others that say, you know, like in Florida, the so-called don't say gay bill. They're starting to realize, wait, the bad guys, you know, the conservatives, they could control all the schools and my kids won't get what they want. They're imposing their bad values on me. They're taking books out of the library that I want to be there. And I'm hoping at least that they start to realize, even if it's just for their own protection, that you want to have school choice so that 
even when you're not in political power, you should you can get what you want. But the ultimate principle should be that we have diverse people with diverse worldviews, and they should be able to get the education they think is right for their kids, not have to defeat their, their neighbors to do it. And we're seeing a good example of this outside of school choice, but it's happening right now at sort of the extremes. So we can really get into these issues if we want to deal with them honestly. The Hasidic schools in New York City, the New York Times has been writing exposés about the kids are not learning basic math and English, and it's abusive. And you can certainly understand why. There's a group called Yafed, who is a who are folks who left Hasidic communities and said, I didn't get the education I need to equip me to live outside of this community. We can really get into the nuts and bolts now of what is the right amount of government versus freedom. You want to let individual communities that have different, and people, you know, I shouldn't even say communities, people with different ideas from the norm of what is the good life. The good life may not be, I get a job that gets me lots of money so I can buy lots of things. It may be totally focused on God and how I serve God. And that can give people a lot of real values in their lives. We can finally maybe have an open discussion about where is the limit of that community making its own decisions versus the ability of kids to become self-governing adults where they can freely choose to join that community. So far, I'm not encouraged. Most of the debate is, oh, these people are terrible and it shouldn't be allowed, or leave us alone. We should be able to do what we want. But I think as we become a more diverse country, these sorts of discussions and debates are going to become more important and harder to demagogue because you'll have so many diverse groups who are saying, wait, don't just tell me to be quiet. I really should be able to get something different. And I think we can have that debate and make people understand that the way to have more peace and certainly more freedom in the country, more harmony, is to, for the most part, let people choose, let families choose what they think is right. Then the question is, is there some baseline that everyone should learn? I think there is, um, but it's debatable what that is. But I would say, well, I'm not entirely even sure where I'd set the baseline. I do think people, kids should learn English uh, because that is still the most commonly spoken language in this country, and that gives them the chance to move out. Speak it, write it, read it, uh, and some level of math so you can do, you know, the math you may need to do for daily life or for most jobs. But you, and maybe learn about, you know, here's how our government's supposed to work, except people don't agree on that. And then it starts getting ugly. So you can at least agree on basic skills, but never should government say, and here, by the way, are the worldviews that we will fund the ones we won't. Anything that's religious, tough break, everybody. You're not, you're not measuring up. Everything will be secular. And then these particular secular values are what we'll, we'll fund. That is totally incompatible with a free society and I think with a peaceful society. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.com.